Thanks be to God. Good to see you. You know, we just sang together a moment ago the lyrics, walk in the light of God's highway. I want to talk a little bit about that today. You know, there's nothing quite like driving along the freeway, especially if we're talking about something like a cross-country road trip. But you're driving along in blissful oblivion when all of a sudden your check engine light illuminates. Have you been there? If you're anything like me, your mind is flooded with all of the potential ramifications of being stranded hundreds of miles from home with car trouble. Or maybe you've had a similar sensation if you're cruising along at night and you see flashing red and blue lights behind you. Your heart starts pounding, hands quickly go to 10 and 2, and you look straight ahead, pretending nothing is amiss. And maybe nothing really is amiss, but can you ever really be sure? There are certain warnings that come out of the blue and are so unavoidable, so concerning and unexpected that you can't just put your head down and ignore them. They can be so jolting to your entire system that they sort of shock you out of your slumber. When I face something like that, I begin retracing my steps very quickly. Where did I go wrong? What's going on? That's sort of how I feel when I read these final few sections right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. It's sort of this check engine light or flashing red and blue lights seen in the rearview mirror. Snap out of it. Pay attention. And while each warning that we see here from Jesus focuses on a unique point. There is considerable overlap, so we're going to treat most of this together today, and then we'll finish Matthew 7 in two weeks. Next week, Stephanie will be uh, speaking for us, so we'll return to Matthew 7 in two weeks, but Matthew 7, verse 13, for today, we read this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. First warning we see from Jesus is about this narrow gate. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. The road is rough that leads to life. Our family spent a week and a half in Colorado last month on vacation, and the majority of our trip, we spent time hiking. If you've ever spent time in the mountains, you know that some of the best trails with the most spectacular views are not always easily accessible, especially if you're driving a minivan which was our mode of transportation. Minivans don't have a lot of the off-road features that other vehicles do. They, they don't have things like a lot of undercarriage clearance. Not to mention, it looks like you belong in the school pickup line, not in the mountains. But most of the trails that we hiked actually had a decent road dirt or gravel typically, but a decent road leading to the trailhead, so we managed just fine. However, there was one hike 
the path to this trailhead was, how, how should I put it? it? It was rough, to say the least. As soon as we passed a sign that read, road maintenance ends here, and I looked at the GPS and we still had four miles to ascend, I knew that we were in for quite a ride. Those four miles took us about 30 minutes to drive. This was actually a hike that Chris recommended, so I kind of blame Chris, but not, not really. It took us about 30 minutes to drive those. We probably could have hiked it just about as fast as we drove it. it and it's hard to describe the, the conditions of, of this road. I'm talking like potholes the size of a suitcase and unending washboard, boulder fields in the middle of the road, like a hundred yards and interspersed with rocks the size of a watermelon everywhere. So you can't avoid them all, you just have to choose which damage you're comfortable with. I was pretty convinced that just about every part of our vehicle would need some repair after this drive. Suspension, brakes, engine, certainly body paint. Um, you just had to choose your preferred damage. And the, the point of all of this, I know I'm rambling, the point of all of this, I considered on several occasions on this drive, maybe we should just count our losses and turn around so that we can live to see another day and our van will make it successfully back to Missouri. We pressed on though, and eventually we made it to the trailhead, a parking lot unsurprisingly filled with rugged Subarus and, and Forerunners and a 2012 Honda Odyssey, uh, which needless to say stuck out like a sore thumb. But we made it, and it was incredible. It was well worth the effort. It did end with our four-year-old falling into a creek, completely submerging her body in that freezing cold water. Aside from that, it was a beautiful hike, a lovely time. But, again, the point. I, I have to keep coming back to the point. The rough road conditions that we encountered on the way to the trailhead, for me, revealed a bit of wavering resolve. Is it really worth it? Should we just turn around? I mean, I don't see any other cars taking this path. Maybe we missed the turn and we're not actually heading to the trailhead after all. Why isn't there a paved concrete road with guardrails like Disneyland and rest stops on the way up the mountain? I thought this was going to be easier. Now, I think everybody understands that some of the most meaningful parts in life come only through great struggle, maybe tension, some heartache, maybe great difficulty. I think we all know this to be true in various ways and on certain levels. But I think one thing we find as we read Matthew 7 here is that the same could be said of the life Jesus offers. It is a difficult path to choose to follow Jesus, to choose to follow the ethic of his kingdom. It is a difficult way to not only confess with our mouths, but also follow Jesus as Lord. But it is, by Jesus' own admission, it is the way to life. The gate that leads to eternal life is narrow. He says, it's very easy to miss. 
It may not look all that enticing. Difficulty will often tempt us to turn around to abandon the pursuit. Consequently, he warns those who find it are few. Conversely, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, he says. It's very enticing, looks very welcoming because of its ease. It has heaps of people dashing headlong through it, which makes it seem right. But don't, he warns, be lured by the enormous popularity. But everybody's choosing this path. That makes it seem like the correct path. But maybe we would consider the possibility that the majority will often struggle to remain on a difficult path. Just like I experienced wavering resolve, difficulty often tempts us to veer off the path. Now, I think it's worth noting, as New Testament scholar Dale Bruner has suggested, the point here from Jesus in his argument is exhortative. It's not statistical. This is not about figuring out the, the precise population of each uh, afterlife destination. The, the point is not, well, I am in the 1%. The top 1%, I've arrived so I can sit back and relax and enjoy this position. The, the point is not that we are in the select few who will be redeemed. As the old spiritual song says, when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. I'll basically be alone but I'll be there, and I'm happy that I made the cut. The new heavens and the new earth will have plenty of vacancy, because it's going to be me and whoever thinks just like me, and the vast majority will be damned. So I don't think that's the direction we take this warning. I, I think the trouble is if we take the warning in that direction, we miss the actual point of what Jesus is warning about here. Furthermore, we, we see Jesus even later in this gospel in Matthew or, or Paul last week, our scripture reading from Romans 5, when he argues how much greater is the justification through Jesus Christ than the death and condemnation through Adam. If many were condemned through Adam, many will be justified in Jesus Christ. We'll save that conversation for another day, but the point is not for me to be satisfied that I have achieved this place in the top 1% or that I have snagged one of those highly coveted but all elusive spots on the dean's list. It's not about statistics, but it is an exhortation to all. And if we make it about statistics and find ourselves feeling satisfied that we have reached this elite group, we miss the warning that all of us need to take seriously. This is an exhortation for me, and I think for you, for all of us. I think especially it's an exhortation for those who consider themselves to be a part of the in crowd. Examine yourselves. Have you entered the kingdom? Have you actually pledged allegiance to this king? And is your fidelity to this king and his kingdom demonstrated as you live this ethic Jesus has taught throughout the sermon? This is a call to all, especially those who maybe acknowledge Jesus with their lips, which we'll get to in a moment, 
This is a call to take this invitation to allegiance very seriously. Follow him. Follow him. Don't just say a prayer. Walk this path. Don't just believe the right things. It is a tiny gate, a difficult path. We will have to make a daily decision to continue on this difficult journey, but this is the path to life. Let's continue reading verse 15. Beware, another warning, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I I think it's worth noting here that some throughout history have flattened out the significance of the Sermon on the Mount to be nothing more than a reminder of our great need for God's grace. In its presentation of this incredibly difficult ethic, Jesus shows that we actually have no hope of living into this life, and so we are reminded of our need for God's grace. And I will say I think we need that reminder of God's grace. This is a difficult path that few enter, Jesus says, so surely God's grace must be central. Still, I think if we turn the sermon into nothing more than a reminder of our need for God's grace, we we miss what Jesus is inviting us into. I, I think this sermon is envisioning a particular way of life that Jesus actively and expectantly welcomes us into, a particular path, not just a reminder of our need for grace. And we hold this intention. And and I think it's good if we can become comfortable holding things like this intention. In in his book, Domestic Monastery, Ronald Rollheiser writes this, healthy spirituality has always been a question of putting a number of things into delicate delicate balance and then walking a tightrope so as not to fall off either side. Spiritual health is very much the task of living the proper tension between a number of things. Living in that tension. And I think one of the tensions that we live in as followers of Jesus is this tension between grace and effort. Grace and striving or a particular ethic. It it is a way of life that we have entered that requires repentance and change. This is empowerment to participate in the life of Christ. And so we reject, or I suggest that we should reject a view of Christian living that sets ethical living in opposition to grace. The idea that, well, if we're intentionally acting in a particular way, that must be, mean we are resisting God's grace. We must be thinking that we are earning salvation Accepting grace surely must mean that we have no part to play. There's nothing more we could do. But I I think that is a fundamental, maybe um, 
not so overt, but a fundamental misunderstanding of the grace of God. This is part of what I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of Discipleship, refers to and talks about as cheap grace. Discipleship is a way of life, not just mental ascent. We enter, as Jesus has said here, the narrow path. We walk the rough road. We must bear good fruit, as he warns. Discipleship is more than just mental ascent, thinking the right things. It's also more than just a verbal profession. Because without a life that reflects the verbal profession we have made, that verbal profession means very little. Ethicist Glenn Stassen put it like this. Uh, it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth considering. He said, the shape, thinking about this tension between grace and effort, he said, the shape of grace is Christ taking form in us. We participate by answering Jesus' gracious call, come Follow me. This is not cheap grace, nor is it works righteousness in which we try to earn our way into the kingdom by our righteous deeds. This grace is a gift of deliverance, given only by God in his only Son, Jesus Christ, fully Lord and fully Savior. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ, worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is spirit led, participative, Christomorphic grace. Tension, grace and effort. We trust in God's grace, and God's grace is what makes this journey possible to begin with. So though the road is difficult, we can remain confident in our decision to follow Jesus and come under his lordship, not because of our ability to adhere to the ethic, but because of God's grace. So we aren't afraid to pledge allegiance to this king. We trust that it is grace through and through that makes this life possible and enables us to continue on the journey. Let's continue reading this last little section here. Not everyone, he says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Needless to say, this is a sobering text. It's a fairly sobering chapter in its entirety, but I think it's one that we must sit with. It is possible to hold to orthodox doctrine. It is possible to be super spiritual and perform a lot of great and mighty works and deeds and still not know Jesus as evidenced by a life that is shaped by his. Know them by their fruit. You know, over the past five or so years, there, there has been a sharp increase in the popularity of investigative journalistic pieces exposing some of the evil that has and is taking place in religious institutions. I don't need to name them. I think we're all aware of a variety of them. And, and while I do think we need to be aware and not allow ourselves to become 
infatuated with or to delight in somebody else's failure. And, and if there are unfounded hit pieces um, that, that are birthed out of a personal vendetta, then sure, we treat those with a healthy bit of skepticism. But I actually think that sort of investigative work is important work. And I think it's important work because of texts like this in Matthew 7. And this is not just about exposing wolves dressed in sheep's clothing who cause a lot of harm. I think that is a significant part of it and why that sort of work is important. But this is also a personal challenge for all of us, one for me. I am not exempt from falling into the trap of using people for my own benefit, even in the name of Jesus. Using people for my own benefit or for my own profit there is an invitation for all of us. Jesus says, just because you say the right things, just because you have the right beliefs, just because you know my name and you have all of the correct answers and maybe even have results that give the appearance of divine approval, none of that means you actually know or abide in me. The fruit we bear is what tells somebody else if we are abiding in Jesus. Is our life being shaped by his? So albeit very important parts of our faith, it is not mental assent alone or verbal profession alone that make a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are known by our fruit. And when professing Jesus Christ as Lord, but producing rotten foot, fruit, I think the expectation should be that we would be called out for that. That's sort of what we sign up for when we become members of the believing community. When we turn the Christian life into nothing more than the assurance that our place in the age to come is secure, we have salvation in Jesus. We've believed and professed, so we are in the clear. We've punched that ticket, and that's what matters. We're in the in-group. So even if everybody else is in the out-group, that, that's not a problem for me because I am in the in-group. That is not a holistic picture of discipleship, and I don't think that's Jesus' point in the many and the few here. Not because belief and faith in Jesus are unimportant. They clearly are important. In fact, the, the Christian faith has a rich history of incredible intellectual rigor. Working out our faith, that is an important part of discipleship. But true belief, true faith are expressed through our fidelity to our King. You recognize a tree by its fruit. Jesus says, not everyone who says the right words, not everyone who has even performed great works, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Entry into the kingdom necessitates and is evidenced by a willingness to pursue conformity to the will of the Father. Wait, we, we did all of these things that seem so spiritual. We had all of the right 
belief systems. But we're reminded earlier in the sermon, Jesus says, performative theatrical righteousness doesn't mean anything. Verbal professions that are incompatible with the way we live don't mean anything at all. I want to bring this to a close with something Matthew Bates wrote in his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. He said this, with regard to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, or faith in Jesus, we should speak instead of fidelity to Jesus as cosmic Lord or allegiance to Jesus the King. Not because, mind you, belief, trust, and faith are unimportant. They certainly are important, but it is our fidelity and our allegiance that actually reveals our deepest held beliefs. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. Take this seriously. Profess, yes, but also live out your allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom as expressed in this Sermon on the Mount. Would you stand as we move toward a time of reflection, a time of celebration around the table, the body and blood of our Lord? where we find an invitation to live in this tension, grace and effort. We receive freely at this table the gift of life, the gift of salvation that Jesus offers, but this table also beckons us, invites us into the cross-shaped life that Jesus modeled, that Jesus invites us into. I wanna say a prayer by way of invitation again. If you have a need that you'd like somebody to join you in prayer for, there will be some people here at the front or in the back. Uh, Please feel free to join them and pray together. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, somebody will speak the words over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive the gift Jesus offers. Let's pray. Almighty and eternal God, So draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds. So fill our imaginations. So direct our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will. And always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?